Welcome again to our class on how to read the Bible. If you are looking at your notes and getting nervous, so am I. Uh, we've got a lot of material to cover, but we'll, we'll get through what we have time for. But really my hope is that these would be a resource for you in the days ahead as you engage Scripture personally, that this, this would be a tool, maybe shove it in your Bible somewhere, uh, that you can be trained to look for some of these elements that we're going to discuss this morning. Well, Martin Luther said this, he said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And more than anything else, this is what we want you to experience as you engage Scripture, that you would find it laying hold of you. Now, we're going to discuss this morning the fact that the Bible is a piece of literature. And technically, it's a collection of various kinds of literature. It's a human book written in human language. And, and so we need to learn how to pay attention to human language. But we, sh we don't want to forget that this is no mere book. This is a living organism. It is, as Hebrews 4 says, living and active and able to pierce the heart. And so next week, Jason's going to help us consider reading Scripture with a heart for God. But the title for this morning is Reading with an Eye for the Details. The fundamental conviction that informs why we read the Bible, as Pastor Peter shared with us the first week, is that it is the Word of God. Over and over again, this significant introductory phrase appears in Scripture, and God said... And as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, that doesn't just apply to the times when, when God is, so to speak, directly quoted in the Bible. No, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. Every word is divine, which means that every word matters because it is every word coming from the mouth of God. Every detail is significant and it has a bearing on how the passage is to be understood and apply to our lives. And so this morning is about training our eyes to notice these details. Well, let me begin with a, a philosophy of interpretation. What does it mean to interpret the Bible accurately? And maybe this is something you have somewhat of an intuitive understanding of, but you haven't thought about it explicitly. Well, well this could be described in a few ways, but here's the principle I'll offer to you this morning. We have, and this is in your notes, we have correctly interpreted the passage when we have understood what God, through the human author, intended to communicate in the text. All right, we've correctly interpreted the passage when we've understood what God, through the human author, intended to communicate in the text. Now, that probably seems obvious. But what that definition does is it, it precludes some common ways of understanding and approaching Scripture that are less than careful. Notice that there is an intended meaning in Scripture. God has assigned it, and He has communicated it, which means the passage doesn't just mean anything. And sometimes people treat the Bible like it's some sort of mysterious book. You know, it, it really could mean anything. Who, who knows what it means? Or maybe that meaning is something that we bring to the passage, you know, kind of this reader response approach. And so we read and certain things come to mind and that's introduced with, well, 
what it means to me is, and then who knows what frightening thing follows that. The what it means to me question is important, but it won't be correctly answered unless we first understand what it means to God. In other words, we're not first concerned about what it means to us, but what did it mean when it was written? So look at this thought from Gordon Fee and Stuart Scott. They say, the biblical texts, first of all, mean what they meant. That is, we believe that God's word for us today is, first of all, precisely what his word was to them. First, our task is to find out what the text originally meant. And this is called exegesis. So there is a message that God intended to convey. But notice there's another element in our definition. God communicates through a human author. So every word in the Bible is divine. But every word is also human. It is written in human language, in Hebrew and in Greek and in some cases Aramaic and in the context of human culture. And, this isn't always realized, it was written through the means of a human mind and psychology. Unlike what is claimed of, of the Quran, the, for example, the, the Bible wasn't written with, with God simply dictating the content while the human author sits passively like a scribe making sure to jot down everything God says. Now, there's certainly parts of the Bible that are like that. For example, when Moses is sitting up on Mount Sinai being delivered the law from God, even given it, it written on stone tablets by the finger of God. But notice how Luke describes the process of writing his gospel in your notes, Luke chapter 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write to you, in orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. That doesn't sound like dictation, does it? He talks about interviewing eyewitnesses, gathering evidence, selecting material, compiling an orderly narrative of what he discovers. But all of this, as Second Peter 1 tells us, Every part of this process is guided by God's providence and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this is accomplished with human mental faculties. And so another way of saying that we've interpreted the text accurately is to ask, have we understood what Paul or John or David meant to say with these words. They were intending to communicate something, which means that while understanding Scripture must happen by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the means of gathering the message from the text is the same means that we use whenever we read and seek to understand any human writing. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to get all philosophical on us this morning, but, but sometimes we miss this. And so the Bible seems like a closed book to us because of it. 
These are important things to recognize so that we don't skip them on our way to application. You know, the process of studying the Bible has been helpfully described the categories of observation, interpretation, and application. But if we try to skip the first two steps and just beeline it to application, then, then we could run into some trouble. For example, I have, the, I have the privilege of working with teenagers, some of them in this room. And uh, what, if a, what if a teenage boy was having a, a fight with his parents, an argument? You know, the, they're not seeing eye to eye about choices he's making or, or certain friendships that he's pursuing. He's upset about that. He reads the Bible, opens up to Psalm 27.10, and it says, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And he says, Thank you, Lord. You're on my side, even when my parents are crazy. I'm just so glad you've got my back. Okay, is that, is that an appropriate application of that verse? No. He's ignored the context. He hasn't interpreted it correctly. Or perhaps a wife who's in the midst of a, a difficult and a heartbreaking marriage. And she reads in Matthew 7 that, that God is our Father and He gives only good gifts to His children. And she considers her marriage and she says, um, this isn't good for me. So it must not be God's will for me. And so she, she concludes that the Bible would allow her to divorce him in order for her to be happy. You see, it, it's a dangerous thing to misread Scripture. In order to apply Scripture faithfully, we need to interpret it accurately. And the process of interpretation begins with observation. So that's what we're going to spend our time on, making observations as we read Scripture. So first, making observations about the text, so details about the passage that we'd want to know going in to, to get our bearings. And this would represent basic information that you would, you would find in, in a study Bible, uh, in the introduction to the book. For example, the, the ESV study Bible that we have on sale in the bookstore. And for most commentaries, the, the opening chapters uh, of the commentary would, would discuss these kinds of things. So, what do we want to pay attention to? Well, we'll, we'll want to consider the author and the date. Who's doing the writing? In some cases, we don't know. Book of Hebrews, it's your best guess. You know, some, some, some books, it's, it's unclear, such as the, as the book of Job. But for most of the 66 books, we know the human individual who served to write it. And so it's, it's helpful to think, what do we know about the author? What do we know about his story that would help us to understand the things that he's saying? You know, when you're reading any book, it's, it's useful to look at the back and look down at the about the author blurb and get a sense of, okay, who's speaking here? Well, well that's the same for biblical books as well. And when it was written is something to pay attention to also because the, the books of the Bible, they're, they're not arranged chronologically. They're arranged according to what, what's called genre. We'll look at that in a moment. So I want to just be aware. Okay, so when was this being written? That, that'll, that'll influence how we approach the text or the audience, the people that the author is addressing. And, and there's an immediate audience and there's an extended audience. If I could say something shocking, 
there's a sense in which not a single book of the Bible was written to you. And yet, every book of the Bible was written for you. you know, Pastor Keith is fond of saying that the book of Jeremiah wasn't written to 21st century America. You can't just switch out the names of the nations and take that message and import all the, the promises and warnings that are there and apply it directly to here. All Scripture is relevant to our lives, but if we haven't properly understood the relevance uh, to the people to whom it was originally written, then we won't understand the relevance to us. Um, you know, first and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles cover the same history, but they have different emphases because they were written to different audiences, and so Kings is written to a people who have been sent away into exile, and they need to see how this is a, res a, re a result of their own disobedience and failure. The Chronicles is written to a people who have returned from exile, and they need encouragement from God to keep going. So knowing the audience clarifies the message of the book, or the genre. Genre is the, the kind of literature that it is. There, there are several different types of genre in the Bible. They're, they're listed here. There's law, there's historical narrative, poetry, wisdom, literature, prophecy, that the gospels are kind of their own genre, a mix of biographical narrative with, with teaching. There are the letters that are written, and then there's the apocalyptic genre, which is revelation, but, but also elements of Ezekiel and Daniel. And, and hopefully, we read those in different ways. Now, each genre has its own rules for how it's to be read. So we, we don't treat poetry like we do an epistle. Now, Paul's teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith in Romans is very different in style from the Song of Solomon. And when we read from the book of Judges last week that Jael drove a tent peg into Sisera's head, and if you're wondering what that was about, listen to last week's message and maybe you'll, you'll find out. The, the author is intending to make an historical claim. All right, there was a woman, Jael, and a guy named Sisera who met his end <laughs> by her. But then you flip over to Revelation 12, and it, it, it talks about a woman who's clothed with the, with the sun and the moon and 12 stars, and she's giving birth, and there's a dragon awaiting. We're supposed to take those as symbols that are conveying real truths, but not the kind of straightforward historical references that the book of Judges does. You see that? It's not that some parts of the Bible should not be read literally, but that to read them literally means to recognize the kind of literature that they are. Again, to read Scripture faithfully is to read it according to how the human author intended for it to be taken, and we learn of an author's intentions through the genre that he uses. We also want to consider the background and culture for the text. The Bible was written in the context of human culture, but not our culture. It is a slow-paced, pre-iPhone, agrarian culture, and since that's, that setting is so foreign to us, we often need help understanding some of the things that come up in Scripture. You know, well, what's a denarius? What's the significance of foot washing in, in the ancient setting? 
But what's interesting is that the Bible isn't just written from one culture at one time. As you move through the canon, you, you move through history and through cultures along with it. So at the time of David, shepherding was considered to be a respectable profession. Now, the patriarchs were shepherds. David was a shepherd. He compares the Lord to his shepherd. But then fast forward in history to the time of Jesus' birth, and, and shepherds were like the outcasts of society. They, they were considered low class, untrustworthy. All right, so, so knowing that detail makes the fact that the angels appeared to shepherds of all people all the more significant. The place in the canon or in redemptive history Obviously, a major distinction is whether it is in the Old Testament or the New. Not that there is a division between them. We saw last week that they present one consistent message through one big story. But, but a story unfolds, doesn't it? There's setup, and there is there's conflict, and there's climax, and there's resolution. So it's good to know where you are in the story. You don't want to just jump into a movie in the middle and not having seen what comes before it. Or just watch the first 30 minutes and not know how it concludes. And at different points in redemptive history, God is teaching His people the same truths, but in different ways. So if we're reading Leviticus, and it's discussing various kinds of sacrifices and how they're to be offered, we, we don't dismiss that. But we do understand it in light of what Jesus has done to fulfill it. And now we, we, we can't be superficial with this. We, we can't just say, hey, that's law stuff, so it doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, it very well might. Just because it's in the Old Testament doesn't mean it was abolished. There's a lot we could talk about that as well, but we'll continue on. There is the context don't read verses in isolation. Know what's around the passage you're reading. How does what came before it serve to set it up? And how does what comes after it follow from what is being said here? You know, it's a, it's a precious thing to memorize and to share Scripture with one another. But sometimes Bible verses tend to travel around kind of relieved of their context. Uh, so just some context-less verses. How many of us know the verse, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be also? All right, we're, we're familiar with that. Many more of you could have raised your hand, but you're lazy, so that's okay. Um, all right, how many of us, do you raise your hand on this one? How many of us know where it's found? Okay, some of us do. It's found in Matthew 18 in the context of church discipline. So Jesus is saying that if an unrepentant sinner doesn't listen to you, bring two or three people along as well. It's connected to the Old Testament principle that everything's to be established on the basis of two or more witnesses. Now, it's not that people quoting this verse not knowing the context are misusing it, but, but knowing why Jesus says this does, does change the tone of it, doesn't it? It adds a deeper meaning to what he is saying. Or what about Psalm 118.24? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a, it's a wonderful statement. But it's not just about any 
beautiful day in which the sun is shining and we're happy. It's talking about the day. The day in verse 22 that God took the stone that the builders rejected and made it the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is the day of Jesus' exaltation. And we are to rejoice and be glad in it. So it's the same joy, but with deeper roots when we know the context. We should also pay attention to the relation to other scriptural truths. Scripture interprets scripture. If we're reading the text in a way that contradicts the clear teaching of scripture elsewhere, then we're reading it incorrectly. Or perhaps we don't understand what the teaching of scripture elsewhere is. And so James 2 says we're justified by works and not by faith alone. What does that mean? Well, if we had the time to look at it in its context, we could discover what it means. But whatever it means, we know James isn't contradicting Paul here. And you know, religious cults, they, they violate these last two principles all the time. The, the context, relation to other scriptural truths. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll, they'll show up on your door and, and, and they'll, they'll bring you a bunch of Bible verses. I hope you're ready for that. But what they're doing is they're taking things out of context and reading them in a way that fails to account for what Scripture clearly teaches elsewhere. All right, what about making observations from the text? I have to admit it, I love the BBC's TV show Sherlock. Sherlock, the, the final uh, season finale aired last week. I thought it was some of the best hour and a half of TV available today, and hopefully I won't get in trouble for saying that. But in the original um, Arthur Conan Doyle series, Sherlock Holmes says to Watson, you see, but you do not observe. And you know, it's easy to do that when we read the Bible. Our eyes glaze over the ink on the page, but we're not making the effort to really observe what's there. And there are details present that matter. They contribute something to our understanding of the passage. And so we want to learn how to pay attention to them. And we're going to look at some features of, of sentences and words in a moment. But, but there are some things that we should notice in the text on a more big picture level. So first, there's, there's generally a main point that is being communicated. So as we read Scripture, that's what we, that we want to seek to observe. What's the big idea that God wants us to come away having learned? And this, this protects us from getting thrown off by things that we might encounter that are confusing. But rather than letting the, the oddities, so to speak, discourage us, we can feel like we've engaged Scripture where it matters most because we've gotten the main point. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection. He says in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? All right, so he talks about baptism for the dead. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I could guess. But again, 1 Corinthians wasn't originally written to me. Evidently, they understood what Paul was talking about here. But I know the main point. 
the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely vital to our faith. And so that's first what we should recognize and appreciate. That main point is conveyed through an argument that we'll want to track as it develops, you know, at the risk of sounding blasphemous. The Bible is religious propaganda. It is advancing ideas toward us. Now, they are true ideas, and so we should and must believe them. They are for our good, but Scripture attempts to persuade us of them, and it does so through the form of an extended argument. And so we want to be able to zoom out from the individual places that we're reading and get a sense of what is the author seeking to accomplish at this point in what he's teaching us which means that we need to pay attention not just to individual words in the text, but to how they contribute to the sentences and the paragraphs that they are a part of. As we said, the very words of Scripture matter. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration. Every word comes from God. But those words are a part of sentences, which are parts of paragraphs and discourses and books and so on. So it's, it's not the word grace that's primarily communicating something, but the propositions that that word is found in and, and the role those propositions play in a larger argument. So J. Scott Duvall and J. Daniel Hayes write, the Bible is not a collection of short, disconnected sentences or unrelated paragraphs. The Bible is a story. Considered that last week. Themes are intertwined throughout the text from paragraph to paragraph. Numerous markers and connections, things to pay attention to, tie these paragraphs together. While it is critical to start with the small details at the sentence level, it is also imperative that we move on to the paragraph level and then on to the discourse or the episode level. So, we had a class on the book of Romans a few months ago, right? The book of Romans has an argument that it is advancing. Paul gives a, a thesis statement in, in chapter 1, verse 16. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then he introduces an important theme to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the reason this is the case, because... The righteous will live by faith. And so, he says, foundational to the gospel and to it being for both Jew and Gentile is that there is a righteousness that comes not on the basis of what we do, but through means of faith in what Jesus has done. And that's what he's teaching in Romans. And he takes the first couple of chapters to establish, well, here's why we need the gospel, because there's bad news. There is the reality of our sin and the punishment that it deserves, the condemnation that's coming upon humanity. And then in chapter 3, he makes a turn. We'll actually look at it in, in a moment. And then he says, but here's what God has done in Christ. And here's how we receive what God has done in Christ. We receive it by faith, not by our works, because, again, our works from earlier on, all they do is condemn us. And so we can't rely on those works. We need to rely by faith in Christ. And then it goes on from there. He anticipates an objection in chapter 6. And the important thing isn't for, for us to track all these details right now, but to be aware. That's what the book of Romans is doing. And so we want to have eyes to see that. The book of Hebrews is making an argument that the new covenant 
is so much better than the old. And the reason why it's better is because we have Jesus. And the reason why Jesus is better is th- there's two reasons for that. He's the Son of God, and He's the great high priest. And Hebrews is teaching you those two things in order to establish its point. And, and sometimes that's easier to see with epistles, but, you know, Old Testament historical books do the same thing. The book of Judges is presenting an argument. It's an argument in the form of narrative, so the way it appears is a little bit different. But several times the author makes this statement. He says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges is an apologetic for the necessity of the Davidic kingdom. Here's why we need God's king which ultimately is pointing to Christ, the true King of God. But what he's doing along the way, and, and if, if you fail to notice that, then you'll, you'll read things in the past and you're like, why in the world is it talking about this? I mean, some deeply concerning, morally problematic messes that are in Judges. And if you just say, man, the Bible's promoting this? Not in the least. He's showing this is the mess that happens when the people don't have a king. They do what's right in their own eyes. And so we need Jesus, right? So tracking the argument helps us deal with what's happening along the way. So big picture stuff. What are the details that we should observe? Well, we should pay attention to grammatical elements, all right? The Bible uses language, and so the rules of language matter, and elements in language matter. So I'm going to put you guys back in grammar school for a little bit. Sorry if you had psychologically damaging experiences in English class. Maybe you had Pastor Peter as your teacher, then I understand. But we just have to pay attention to some of these things if, if we want our time in the Bible to be effective. Because again, the Bible, it's a book, all right? God works in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to understand. But that's not like some mystic experience in which we close the Bible and God just teach me things. Well, hopefully he brings things to mind, but he does it through written communication. So there's no getting around, hey, I, I need to learn how to read writing, okay? So grammatical elements to pay attention to. Repetition of words, and as we go along, I'll, I'll give some examples. I won't be able to draw them out much, but just give them a quick look. You can take more time later. First John 2, verse 15, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What word is repeated there? World. All right. It's just staring you in the face. Now, the word love appears a few times as well. And so, okay, noticing, hey, John's using this word a lot. What does he mean by this word? Does he mean the same thing by this word every time he uses it? Or there are different nuances that are introduced. But, but if nothing else, we realize, hey, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the danger of the world and that we're not to love it. And so then that causes further investigation on our part to get at what John's saying. You can do the same thing with the word comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, and the word remain in John 15, 1 through 10, and other examples as well. All right, 
more tools to receive. Cause and effect. Often the biblical writers will state a cause and then give the effect of that cause. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Okay, so the cause, a soft answer, the effect is that wrath is turned away. All right, if you want that result in relationships and conversations that you're having, Proverbs is saying, hey, a wise move to do, contribute a soft answer and see what happens because the effect is that wrath subsides. All right, or don't be surprised if anger has been stirred up if you've given a harsh word. That's the effect of that cause. You introduce that element, you raise the tension of the conversation, anger is going to come. So general principles but it's doing it through cause and effect relationships. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, that's the cause, is death. That's the effect that comes. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pronouns. Pronouns are words that stand in the place of other nouns and things that function as Nouns and sentences, you have various kinds of pronouns, you have personal pronouns, I, he, she, they, it, me. Uh, you have other kinds of pronouns as well, what are called relative pronouns, indefinite pronouns. Relative pronouns, say Paul, Romans 8, has a series of relative pronouns, words like who, whom, which, the word that can function in this way as well. Uh, but these, th these are actually in, in the original language, they're, they're masculine relative pronouns, and so he's talking about personal individuals here. But notice how these pronouns carry forward Paul's statements. All right, Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so, Paul's saying this, all right, those whom God foreknew, these are the same ones that he predestined. You see that, right? These are the same ones also that he called, that he justified, and the same whom that he glorified. And what Paul is saying is that in, in the golden chain of redemption, every link necessarily leads to the next. And so that no one is lost along the way. And that wonderful, assuring truth is communicated through pronouns. Conjunctions. These are words, generally little words, that connect parts of the sentence together. The word but is a conjunction. We saw that Paul's making an argument in Romans at the beginning. He's establishing the reality of universal sinfulness and God's judgment. This is summarized in chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right, that's what he's trying to show you. You can't be saved by the law. All the law does is say, you're a sinner and you failed. Now, what if that were the end of the book? <laughs> Period, end of the sentence, end of the letter, no hope. Verse 21. But, 
Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. An amazing conjunction right there. But this is what God has done to rescue us. The word therefore, you know, people say, you see a therefore, what do you do? See what it is there for, right? Okay. Romans 12, Paul makes a transition in his letter. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Why do you do that? Well, you have to back up. And, and is he talking about something at the end of chapter 11? What is this therefore, therefore? Is he talking about everything he said in Romans so far? But if you, if, you, if you miss the beginning of the sentence and just say, hey, I appeal to you guys, I appeal to you, I appeal to you, you got to get on it. Well, then you lost your motivation for that, haven't you? But that motivation is located in that word, therefore. Purpose statements, words like that and in order that communicate purpose, that communicate intention, design. Uh, John 15, 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that, here's the purpose, you should go and bear fruit. We're not fulfilling our purpose if we're not doing that. And that your fruit should abide. And then he gives what you might consider a result clause. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. All right? Means by which something is accomplished. Very important. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Did I leave anything out? <laughs> by the Spirit, all right? You're not doing this in your own strength. You're not doing this by your own effort. How do we do it? We do it by the means of the Holy Spirit. That's something to be cherished. Conditional clauses, uh, these are if-then kinds of statements. You can read that quote later. Uh, 1 John 1 through 6, a condition is given, and then the result of that is followed. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, all right, that's the condition. If you're in that condition of claiming fellowship with God while walking in the darkness, what does that mean about you? Then we lie and do not practice the truth. Colossians 1, Paul makes all these statements about our position in Christ in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If, <laughs> can't ignore the rest of the sentence. Sometimes the if part comes after the then part. He's saying this is the then. If indeed you continue in the faith. You know what the Bible doesn't ever do? The Bible doesn't ever say, hey, you can disregard your faith. You can pay no attention to your perseverance and you'll be okay in the end. Not in the least. God preserves us to the end, but He does so through leading us to persevere in the faith. All right, literary elements. Those were grammatical elements. What about features of literature? And we'll go through this quickly. There are idioms and figures of speech. Um, look at this figure of speech, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. He's not saying, you know, literalistically that's what they are. He's comparing them to these. And, and what a picture that is. 
I mean, imagine a tomb that's been cleaned on the outside. It's pristine and white, neglecting the fact that on the inside is death and decay. And he says, that's what you're like. And you're happy about that? So, amazing figure of speech. There are idioms, not idiots, okay? The Bible's not insulting us here. Uh, idioms are phrases that need to be understood as phrases. And you can't just like look up each individual word in the dictionary to find out what the phrase means. We use idioms in English all the time. Uh, whatever floats your boat. Okay, if you look up the word boat in a dictionary, you look up the word float, uh, that's not going to tell you what the phrase means. It provides buoyancy to your flotation device. That's what the Curtises like to say. Uh, that's not what the phrase means, right? It means whatever you prefer, okay? So idioms function in this way. They're idioms in Scripture. Genesis 15, you'll go to your fathers. Is he going to go to them to a visit? No, he's going to die. It's a euphemism for death. Uh, Matthew 14, I mean 12, 40, this, this one's interesting. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So th this, is a, this is a confusing phrase because three days and three nights, and what comes to our mind is all right, uh, these various 24-hour periods in which there is daylight, in which there is nighttime, and then people try to figure out, okay, how do you fit that in? Because Jesus is saying he's going to be in the earth three days and three nights, and then it's okay, how could he have been crucified on Friday and rise on Sunday, and then they rework all that? But what we need to recognize is three days and three nights is an idiomatic phrase. And the meaning of that phrase is three days, okay? So it's, it's not this something communicating with scientific precision about the time frame. It just, in Jesus' day, it, just, it was a way of saying three days. All right, uh, Luke 9, 59, first let me go and bury my father. This is the response the man makes to Jesus' call to, to follow him. And he starts to give excuses, and Jesus says, hey, let the, let the dead bury their own dead, which is a word picture. He's saying, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. But that kind of sounds harsh, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus said some harsh things, but it's like, come on, give the guy a little break. Uh, well, like, this is an idiomatic phrase. It, it didn't just mean, hey, I've got this corpse hanging out in my house. Can I put it in the ground first? He meant, let me allow my father to live out the rest of his days. He'll die. I'll bury him. I'll receive the inheritance. And then now that all that's in order, I'll come and follow you. Okay, so that's what he was referring to there. Tone. Does it sound angry, corrective, celebratory, warning, encouraging, informative? want to get a feel for how the passage sounds, how it feels through the tone. You can compare Paul's tone, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, with Galatians 3, 1 through 4. And you'll notice a striking difference there. Hyperbole. The Bible uses exaggeration. Hyperbole is a fancy word for exaggeration. And sometimes people don't want to recognize that because, you know, they think that, okay, well, what is the Bible exaggerates? We think exaggeration is a bad thing, but, but exaggeration is a normal feature of human communication that helps us to make a point. Again, I minister to, to teenagers, and they are prone to exaggeration. There's nothing in this house to eat, right? And the fridge might be fully stocked, but nothing that they want to eat. And so that's why they say that, or my life is over. Really? You don't have a pulse right now? No, what, how I'm defining life right now. Okay, so... There are hyperboles. 
John 4, 29. Come, this is the woman at the well, her response about Jesus. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? All I ever did. Boy, that must have been a long conversation. <laughs> every time I sneezed, every time I brushed my teeth. No, all the things that matter to me, he knew and he told me. So that's what she means. Same thing, all the world being registered in Luke 2. Really, all the world, China, North America, all of the, the Roman world, all the world that mattered to Caesar, he made sure to register. Uh, Pastor Keith would like this one. The Bible uses irony and sarcasm and humor as well. Uh, I love this text, Genesis 31. Uh, Laban comes to Jacob, who's been fleeing uh, away from them, and, and, and he says... And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? <laughs> That's an ironic statement, all right? You think a god that can be stolen is a real god? Uh, that that kind of says something about the character of that god. Moses, the biblical writer, is engaging in irony when he shows us this. And then verse 33, there's all this humor that results from this. He's just mocking the situation left and right. So Laban went into Jacob's tent. And into Leah's tent, and into the tent of two female servants. He's searching all over, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and into Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods, again, ironic statement, taken these gods. These gods can be taken. And put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. I mean, is there more, something more humiliating for a god to experience? Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, I love this. Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. Apparently that excuse goes very far back in history. <laughs> so he searched, but did not find the household gods. All right, They didn't speak up. They didn't contribute anything to this effort. They didn't say, hey, she's sitting on me. Uh, <laughs> evidently, they weren't able to. All right, Mark 9, piece of humor. Peter says, hey, it's good that we're here. It's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's, let's make these three tents. And I love that he says, and, and you know, Gospel of Mark's believed to be on the basis of Peter's eyewitness ter uh, testimony. He tells on himself, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So he's just blurting out whatever comes to mind. Um, finally, contrast and comparison. Um, you can look at Genesis 6 later. Um, just the contrast between the description of Noah and the description of the rest of humanity. All right. Very quickly. I know everything's been so fast-paced. Uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 32 and just take a couple of, of minutes before we close. And I just want us to look at a passage of Scripture and get a feel for some of these details that we want to pay attention to. Okay, we... There are plenty that we'll pass over, but that just allows further study on our part. All right, let's start with some information about the, about the text. Who's the author of Exodus? Moses, right? We learned that from Jewish tradition, from Jesus as well. He tells us that. Who's the audience? Who is this book written to? It's written to Israel. And it's written to Israel at the beginning stages of its history. It's written to the generation of the Exodus 
and to the early generations of Israel. And, and basically it's showing, okay, if you want to get your, your beginning steps off right in your national identity and the calling and purpose that God has given you, you have to pay attention to this. All right, so that's who it's written to. The context of this chapter uh, is in the context of, of, of Moses has been spending time up on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. And in chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. And the first two commandments are, you shall not have any other gods before me. And not only that, but, but you shall not make any graven images, not only to worship those other gods, but to worship the true and living God. And, and the second commandment doesn't just say, hey, don't, don't worship foreign gods. It says, worship the right God in the right way. And because God is holy and transcendent, don't worship images of Him as a means of worshiping Him because you, you're not representing what God is really like. Now, what's interesting is in chapter 20, He specifically says, after the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourselves gods of gold. <laughs> he mentions that by name. And then later on in chapter 24, the people reply, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. All right, so they say, hey, we've, we've got this. Well, yeah, sure. Ten of them? Okay, we'll, 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 we'll do that. All right, and so that's what has preceded this chapter. That's the setting. There's a lot more that could mention. Uh, what's interesting is the book of Exodus barely mentions sin, and then in these couple of chapters, it mentions it 11 times. All right, so that's repetition of words to appear, gives us a feel. All right, so verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. All right, ironic statement. You, you can just make gods? Is that how they are? Is that how it happens? Okay, that's cool. Um, as for this Moses, just this description, this Moses, what's his name again? The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron said to them, he doesn't even provide any objection, he doesn't say, all right, wait, wait, guys, let's think about this. He just says, okay, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Bit of context. How do they have gold? They were slaves. They plundered the Egyptians. They are using the very gold that the Lord allowed them to receive on their way out of Egypt in order to break the Lord's commandments. Okay? And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it. All right, now, now notice these descriptions. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. That's, that's how it happened. That's how these gods were made. And they said, these are your gods. All right, I don't know what the deal with the, the plural is there, but evidently they've missed out on the reality of the true God. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's not just that they're breaking the first commandment, they're breaking the second. They say, okay, here's Yahweh right here, the golden calf. Really? This, this golden calf led us out of Egypt? I, I don't remember seeing him there. 
uh, when all the ten plagues happened. And then verse 5, when Aaron saw this, all right, so he just made it, his own creation. In response, he built an altar before it. Wow. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. They think they're worshiping Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Look at this description. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. <laughs> All right, pronouns to pay attention to. Moses, your people have messed up. Uh, they turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. What a description. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It repeats the phrase just to show how ridiculous and sinful this is. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath burn, may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make you a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord, right? Capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. He implores God's covenant name, the God who has committed himself to these people. Here's the role of intercession, by the way. The Lord, his God. And he said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? <laughs> All right, repeated words. Same exact description from verse 7 to verse 11. But in verse 7, God's saying, hey, Moses, your people, they got some issues. And in verse 11, Moses is saying, your people to whom you've committed yourself. They've sinned, but how will you respond? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? He's, he's building a case to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster and your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Okay, so... Redemptive history is coming into play here. All, all that we looked at last week, those promises, Moses is appealing to these. You know, God, this, we're dealing with something, not that it didn't just begin in Exodus 32, right? 400 years ago, you made some promises to three big name individuals. Remember these. Not that God's forgotten that by any means. God, in fact, is leading Moses to intercede in this moment. But Moses is appealing to the character of God made known throughout redemptive history. All right, just one thing to notice, and then we'll, we'll stop looking at Exodus 32 and close. The golden calf, okay, so here's how cultural background helps us to understand this. Why'd they, why'd they do that? Well, the calf was an expression of Egyptian worship. Look at this quote in your notes from John Oswald. Wonderful book called The Bible Among the Myths, and he's just dealing with people who say, yeah, the Bible is just like one of those myths that, you know, same mythologies of creation and, and such. And he says, no, this is categorically different from everything that surrounds it. 
He says the Israelites are forbidden to make an image of God because that would immediately suggest that God is a part of this world and can be manipulated through this world. So theology is coming to bear here. This is why Moses became so violently angry when he saw the people worshiping their old fertility symbol from Egypt, the bull. It was not merely because they had broken their covenant commitment to God as expressed in the second commandment, but that they were headed down a road that would lead them directly back to the theological darkness from which God was seeking to deliver them. Right? That, that, that gives that passage a little bit more oomph to it, right? A little bit more clarity. There's much more that we could look at. I'm sorry I went over time this morning hoping to put tools in your, in your hands. I know that this can feel like you're, you're kind of trying to swim in a whirlwind of, of activity. Um, whatever you do with this material, and I hope it helps, but never stop reading the Bible. <laughs> uh, even if you don't remember, what's a relative pronoun? Read the Bible. Please read the Bible. God's Word has power to change our lives. And when we read it prayerfully and with the heart to obey, He's pleased to reveal things to us. And He'll do that. All right? Let's engage Scripture next week. Jason will, will help us consider reading the Bible with a heart that is inclined to hear and obey from God. Let's pray and we'll close. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for the gift that it is. Thank you for the, the people who are here this morning, eager to listen and learn and engage you. Lord, I pray blessing upon them as they do. In Jesus' name, amen.